God so loved the world. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks, guys. Well, we're continuing today in our study through the book of Hebrews. And if you're new with us today, we're kind of in a lengthy series of the book of Hebrews that we've titled Jesus is Better. Uh, we think that the book of Hebrews is about uh, addressing the issue of people falling away from the faith. And the solution to falling away is to see how Jesus is better. So we're going to continue um, our study looking at Hebrews chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Hebrews 7. Pray with me. Father, we love you. Once again, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to just gather in your name as your people. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to come here and, and not look within, but look without. To look to the things that are outside of us. Look to the things that uh, are from you. Lord, we recognize and, and confess and profess um, our fallenness. We know that we can uh, justify all sorts of sinful things, that we can talk ourselves into stuff. That when we look within, we see the brokenness. But Lord, when we look outside of ourselves, when we look to you, we see the good news of your grace and your mercy covering us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, meet us today, meet us through your word. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Help us to see the good news of this passage. And as we delve in deep into this uh, argument and this line of thinking uh, about the, uh, the priesthood and what all that means as we step into, frankly, some deep theology. I pray, Lord, that we would walk away just marveling at the access that you've granted us. So, Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, years ago, a French Catholic priest was having coffee with a French Protestant pastor. It might sound like the start of a bad joke, but hang with me. These two guys sit down, and, and they were friends, and they had a friendly relationship, and uh, you know they would have good discussions on things. And certainly, as they dove in, it wasn't some sort of like combative discussion, but it did uh, land on a, on a topic where they didn't see things the same way. They started talking about the Catholic Church's view of saints. And of course, the Protestant pastor explained that he didn't agree with the Catholic view, but they did both agree on some things. They agreed that we should know our history and that we should know the, where we came from and what Christians did in the past. They, they, they agreed that we need to learn from the good things that Christians did in the past, that we should learn from maybe the bad things that Christians did in the past. So, so they agreed that they really shared an appreciation for the saints of the, of the past. And in fact, they both agreed that, listen, they were inspired by the saints from the past. However, the Catholic belief about saints it moves beyond understanding, and it even moves beyond inspiration, because Catholics find comfort knowing that the saints of the past have the same struggles as us today. We share that comfort. However, they also pray to the saints. So in the Catholic system, they have these patron saints that, that are kind of uh, uh, saints that you can go to for different types of hardships, and, and you can pray to those saints, and those saints can pray for you, and they can serve as these kind of intermediaries on different needs that you have. Of course, the Protestant pastor rejected the entire doctrine of praying to the saints, and he did so correctly. However, the Catholic priest presented this kind of, and I think kind of compelling, true-to-life scenario to kind of explain his point. And, and here's how he started. He asked a question where he said, what would need to happen 
for you to speak to the president of France. The Protestant pastor, well, I've never thought about that. I have no idea what it would take to get access to, to speak to the president of France. He said, well, okay, well, if you think about it, if you wanted to speak to the president of France, you would have to go through a series of mediators, right? Like, like you would need to maybe start with the bottom of somebody that maybe you know in politics, and maybe that person could find somebody a little bit higher up the chain, and that person could find somebody a little bit higher up the chain, convince them, serve as a mediator to the next one. You would ultimately get to the chief of staff, and then the chief of staff would present your case. This person would like to meet with you on this topic, and then the president would then decide if, if you could meet with him. And so his point was, is, listen, you would need all sorts of mediaries in order to have access to the president of France. And then where he landed his argument and his illustration, he said, isn't God greater than the president of France? So if the president of France requires all these mediators, shouldn't the same uh, be true when we're trying to access God? Hebrews 7, 11 to 19 is important because it really pushes into this idea of how do we have access to God? How can we have this relationship with him? How can we have this continual relationship with him? Now listen, in our fallenness, most of us fill our minds with all sorts of other things rather than pondering how do we have access to God. And listen, I think that's only exaggerated in our day, right? Like our day is the, the day of distraction, we have a million things that can distract us, okay? We, we have just amazing entertainment that the world has never seen for $5.99 a month that you can scroll and you can watch on your phone, right? Like, like we can be distracted by all these different things. But what ends up happening to that is it numbs our heart to spiritual things. And so we can go uh, our whole lives seeing incredible entertainment, making a lot of money, pursuing all sorts of dreams, and then never think about, okay, how do we have access to God? And, and what a shame, right? Because what more important question is there? What, how, how are you going to spend eternity with God or away from God? This is why Hebrews 7, 11 to 19 is important. Another reason why it's important and, and why we struggle with this topic of having access to God is the hard reality is, is that when we do indeed pursue access to God, we do it wrong. Many of us, we try to pursue access to God in our own moral strength. And in, in a strange way, kind of like these Catholic saints, some of us try to do it based upon uh, our relationship with someone else. We, we lean on a relationship with someone else in order to get access to God. Okay, before I dive into to verse 11, let me say one comment about the context of Hebrews 7. In Hebrews 7, we've walked into this discussion on priests. And priests are mediators between humans and God. It's maybe helpful to compare priests and prophets. Both priests and prophets uh, have a relationship between God and humans, and there's communication that happens. So if you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, they related God to humanity, but the way communication worked for the prophets was God communicated to the prophets, and then the prophets communicated to the people. Priests are the other way around. The priest, the communication went the other way. Communication went from the people through the priest up to God. That's the difference between pros, uh, prophets and priests. And, and so priests are there in order to gain access to God. It's in order to have this communication from people through the priest up to God. So understanding the ministry of a priest is key to understanding how to have access to God. Well, your first points here, verses 11 to 14, explain how Jesus is different than the Levitical priesthood. Follow along as I read verses 11 to 14. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law itself as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses, said nothing about the priest. Hebrews 11 and 19 compares and contrasts Jesus with the Levitical priesthood, as well as compares and contrasts Jesus with the Melchizedek priesthood. In verses 11 to 14, he makes the simple point that Jesus is different from the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests were part of what's called the Old Covenant. Now, if you think of the entirety of the Bible, it's really this covenant relationship with God. And so you can kind of break the Bible uh, into two key parts. You have the covenant of works, and then you have the covenant of grace. Now, we think in Old and New Testament, but works and grace are a little bit different. The covenant of works is the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, you have this relationship between humanity and God that was called the covenant of works. And if you remember the Garden of Eden, they gave them this one command, right? Do this, and you will surely live. Don't do this, and then you'll die. So it was this covenant of works. Now, before we pile on Adam and Eve, if you and I were in that garden, we would have done the same thing, okay? Maybe it wouldn't have been that day. Maybe it would have looked a little bit different, but we would have ended up in the same place, right? So how does God respond to humanity not maintaining the covenant of works? Well, he establishes the covenant of grace. So beginning there in Genesis 3.15, God sheds blood, covers their sin, and we enter into this period of the covenant of grace. Now, within the covenant of grace, it kind of functions, maybe think of it as like an umbrella covenant, where you have these covenants underneath it, okay? So you have the old covenant and the new covenant. Think Old Testament, New Testament, okay? In the Old Testament, you have what's called the old covenant, okay? Now, to be clear, the old covenant is within this broader heading of the covenant of grace, okay? Now, within the old covenant, or even going further down, you have other mini covenants. So you have the, the covenant relationship with Adam. Then you have a, the Noahic covenant. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant. Then you have the Mosaic covenant. You have all these smaller covenants that are all part of this old covenant of grace. But within this old covenant of grace, you have this Mosaic covenant which establishes the Levitical priesthood. Is anybody lost? Are you with me? Okay. We have the old covenant, we have the Mosaic covenant, and we have the Levitical priesthood that's established. That Levitical priesthood is basically an entire tribe of the nation of Israel that is focused on the cultic uh, 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 responsibilities of the nation of, of Israel. So what they did is they maintained the tabernacle, and then they maintained the temple. They were in charge of performing the worship and performing the sacrifices, and that's what the Levitical priesthood did. However, the point of this passage is that the Levitical priesthood did not enable perfection. That this means that no one was able to perfectly keep the old covenant law. No one was able to keep all the rules. So in this way, the old covenant had limits to it. In, in this way, the Levitical priesthood was old, and it was weak, and it was useless, and it was limited. The Jews in the Old Testament, uh, they had this limited access to God. And hear me, they wanted an eternal uh, relationship with God. They wanted to have access to God in this eternal way, but they weren't able to have it. The, the veil remained over the Holy of Holies, and as a result, a change was needed. Now, before we get to the change and the nature of that change, uh, we need to understand the reason why imperfection was an issue 
The reason why imperfection, not being able to have this uh, uh, perfected uh, relationship and be made perfect through this uh, Levitical priesthood, the reason why that's important is it affected their access to God. A A way to think of this is if someone was not perfect like God, then God would not allow them into his presence. Perfection is an issue of access. Are you with me? So if you're not perfect, you're not going to have access to the perfect God. So if perfection is not attainable, then access to God is not attainable. So this means that unless you're made perfect, you're not going to go to heaven when you die. It also means that if you're not moved into this category of righteousness here in this, uh, in this world, you're not going to be able to relate to God. You're not going to be able to have access to God, and you're not going to be able to draw near to Him. I know we're delving deep, but none of this is irrelevant theological speculation, okay? This is all key to understanding the gospel and how we relate to God. Okay, the change. We needed a change. This was desperately needed. Well, there was limits, and therefore we needed the change. But let me make a few comments about the nature of this change. Jesus is going to make a change to this relationship. But let me say three things about it. Number one, the change was not outside of God's covenant of grace or his sovereign redemptive plans. Sometimes when we think change, it's, we, we might think, okay, well, God thought we could go this way. Oh, well, that wasn't a good way to do it. Well, let me go this way. No, that's not how it worked out. This was all within God's redemptive plans. This was all within his covenant of grace. Things played out the way that he wanted them to play out. God didn't make a mistake here with this old covenant. Number two, therefore, second, the, the limits of the Levitical priesthood had the purpose of seeing the need for a change. This is the main point of it. The Old Testament uh, Levitical priesthood and the reality of not being able to perfectly keep the law, the main virtue of all that was to highlight you're not good enough. Now you might say, man, what a bummer. There's great grace in that, isn't there? Isn't that a wonderful reality to see that, you know what, I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's step one in your relationship with God. And that was the great benefit of the Old Testament law. It's good because sinners are in need of a Savior. And it helps us see the... ...as glorious unless we compare it to what it was changed. ...to the biblical priesthood. Rather... Thinking it to its intended, lay this out for us and explain it to us. Number one, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law with. and they shall be my people. Friends, that prophecy did not happen in the Old Testament. step in that direction, but Jeremiah 31 was always intended
but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, but uh, for, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay, where are we? The Levitical priesthood was within God's covenants, and it was within God's sovereign redemptive plan. However, that old covenant was weak, it was limited, it was unable to make perfect, it was useless to allow us access to God, so a change was needed, right? Therefore, in in 15 to 19, it explains that even though Jesus was different than the Levitical priesthood, he was similar in many ways to Melchizedek. Unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus was not weak. He was not limited. He was not useless in, in, in enabling us to have access to God, but rather like Melchizedek, his priesthood was better. So specifically, his priesthood was better not because of his ancestral line. It was not better for some legal reason. It was because, in verse 16 it says, it was better because of the power. is better. The reason why his priestly ministry is better is based upon his power. The strength of Jesus's priesthood is his strength. Do you see that? It's his power that is the grounding of all of this. The Levitical priesthood was based upon uh, of uh, these um, external ancestral lines. You were of the tribe of, of Levi. And so whoever your dad was, then you were you know, part of this thing. So it was this external reality. But when you compare it to Jesus, his was better because it was this internal reality. It had to do with his internal power. That's why he's better than the Old Testament priest because inside of him he has this power. And, and it's more powerful than any other power that's out there. Another way to think of this is that Jesus always accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. So when Jesus says, I'm going to get up on the cross and I'm going to pay an atonement for my people's sins, that's what he accomplishes. It's not based upon anything else. There's nothing that can stop his power. His powerful, his power is more powerful than anything else. So the Old Testament priests longed to be able to lead people uh, uh, to this eternal access to God, but they couldn't. They weren't powerful enough. However, Jesus was powerful, and he always accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. Therefore, his ministry leads to access. Look again at verse 16. If you question his power, the author of Hebrews explains that his power is demonstrated again by his indestructible life. Go back to the, to the cross. Satan and sinners, they destroyed and killed Jesus, right? And they thought, they, they thought that they won that day. What did Jesus say in those, those final words on the cross? It is finished. You see, when Satan and, and, and sinners heard that, they thought that they won. They thought that Jesus gave up. They thought that they had defeated him when he said it was finished. But that's not what Jesus meant, right? When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying that his work of, of atoning for his people's sin, that was accomplished. It was complete. So in reality, his victory was just beginning when he said it was finished. So, so, so they didn't understand his indestructible life because even though he died that day, he rose then again on Sunday morning. Friends, a way to think of this is that even death cannot kill Jesus. How about that? That's how powerful he is. He has this indestructible life. He's more powerful than anything that came before him, anything that tempts us after him. He's more powerful than all of it because he has this indestructible life. Even death can't kill Jesus. 
This is the power that grants us access. The author of Hebrews supports these claims by, in verse uh, 17 by, by citing Psalm 110.4. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In, in citing that, you can go a lot of different directions with it. But what the author of Hebrews does, he really camps out and emphasizes this word forever. He's trying to highlight the forever nature of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. His priestly power is forever. So where the Old Testament priests were temporal in their work, Jesus was eternal. Where, where, they, had to, uh, where they had limits in their access, that maybe their access would, would give access to God for a season. It wouldn't give access to God for eternity. They had to go back over and over and over and make additional sacrifices. It was different than Jesus. Jesus had a one and done, right? His sacrifice was sufficient for all of our sins, past, present, future. The sins you haven't even thought of, maybe sins years from now, Jesus has covered them with his blood. It's based upon his work. You can have access to God forever. Nothing else is needed. His work is powerful enough to grant you access forever. Amen? What good news. This means that the old law and the priesthood were, in verse 18, he says that they were set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. What he's saying here is the old covenant was a temporary custodian, is what Paul says in Galatians 3. The old covenant was never intended to make someone perfect. The old covenant was never intended for you to have eternal access to God by keeping the law perfectly. It was to show people that they needed grace. But Jesus came, he fulfilled the purpose of that, and then he sets aside this old covenant. He, we, we no longer need to worship in the way that they worship. He did away with the Levitical priesthood. He did away with all those animal sacrifices. And listen, I think this is within the sovereignty of God. Then within about 35 years after Jesus ascends up into heaven, do you know what happens? The Romans come and they destroy the temple and it's never rebuilt again. And I think this is God saying, you don't need it ever again. You don't need that temple. You don't need that priesthood. You don't need any more uh, animal sacrifices because Jesus rose from the dead. The reason he has set all this aside is because he's replaced it with something better. Now we have the new covenant. Now we have this better thing. In verse 19, he says that it's a better hope is introduced. Jesus sets aside something that is weak and has limits to it, and it's useless in order to replace it with something better. The old could not lead to ultimate redemption and ultimate access. It couldn't lead to total transformation, even at the heart level. It couldn't point out, all it could do was point out the problem and praise God for it, but it couldn't provide the solution. The new covenant, when Jesus came, he provides the solution. However, we needed the law on our hearts. We needed something more. We needed this new covenant. And this is a better hope, verse 19. And listen, this better hope, this is the good news. This is the gospel of this passage. This is the good news that we have, that we have a better hope. You see, we're not only, uh, we not only have something that points out the problem, but we also have something that provides the solution. Isn't that better? Amen. You see, Jesus is a better sacrifice, and thus we have this genuine access to God, and, and our role is simply to believe it. Isn't that better than purchasing pigeons and going up to Jerusalem every year? Isn't this better? We believe it, and we have access to God. Think about it. When we, uh, when we believe in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we're able to be assured that we have this eternal access with God. Nothing can take it away from us. And listen, even on a day-in, day-out basis, when you really blow it, 
Maybe you return back to those old sins and those struggles. Listen, God's grace is sufficient again even in those moments. Isn't that better? Isn't it better not to have to shed more blood and continue to go back, to continue to jump through these hoops? The work is done. It's better. Further, the better present is really not what is the best part of the better new covenant. You see, Jesus' sacrifice doesn't just make this world a little bit better. Really, the, the hope of his sacrifice is that he's taken us to a whole new world that is to come. He's taken us to this place like the Garden of Eden where we're walking and talking with God, that we're with him and all things are, are made as they should be. We're going to be able to walk with God. Isn't that, isn't, the, isn't that better than the old covenant? Isn't that better than anything else this world is selling? Isn't, it, uh, isn't that uh, more true and more lasting? Isn't that a better hope? Amen? That's better than anything this world is selling you. Friends, this is why Hebrews 7, 11 to 19 is a call to draw near. Jesus' priestly ministry, it's based upon his power of an indestructible life, verse 16. All of that ushers in something better than the old covenant. It's not that it was bad. It's just that what we have is better. You see, it gives us a better hope. It grants us better, more intimate, more eternal access to God. We can know Him. We can walk with Him. We can be in His presence forever. This is the promise. We have access to Him. Now we can draw near to Him. Hear me, friends. If you're a Christian today, your daily access is impeded by subtle self-righteousness. You see, when we have pride in our hearts, when we, when we say, listen, uh, this is going to be the standard, and, and I can get up over this standard myself, and then I get up over that standard, and then I become like the Pharisees, and, and I pride in what I've accomplished. In, in essence, you're, you're your own priest. And listen, that, that type of pride, that type of priestly pride in yourself versus in Jesus, that gets in the way of an intimate access to Jesus. Hebrews 7 is explaining the glorious blessings of access. Go back to the gospel in those moments where you feel that tinge of pride coming in. When you compare yourself to somebody else, you say, I don't struggle that way. I, I, can, I can get up over this law in my own strength. I, I must be better. I, I, can, I can be closer to the Lord in my own strength. When you have those moments, when you feel those tinges in your heart, repent of your subtle self-righteousness so that you can draw near. In a weird way, some of us can rely upon access to Jesus through believing in other people. A radical example of this is, is this Catholic idea of access to God through a patron saint. But, but a similar reality is happening when we lean too much maybe on a spouse, or we lean too much on a mentor or a parent or a pastor in order to gain access to Jesus. What, what I mean is, is that, listen, you can come here week in and week out and hear a boring sermon and just like totally check out, okay, and like check a box and say, cool, I'm right with God. I'm leaning on this church, I'm leaning on this, this, this moment, this other person, I'm leaning on these other people to be right with God. But just because your father is a deacon doesn't ensure that you're always going to walk faithfully. Repent of believing that you're going to have access through other people. When you come here, when you come to God, be intentional. Understand that it's, it's between you and God and you have access to him. Don't lean upon the strength of other people. That's not to say don't listen to mentors or anything like that. It's just to say just because you have good mentors or just because you, you have good parents, there, there's still this relational thing that needs to happen individually between you and God. Rather, replace all that by marveling that you can have better hope of access. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christians, you have been healed. You have eternal access with the God of the universe, the creator of all that there is. You have access to him. You have a better hope than anything this world is selling you. You have something better than professional satisfaction. You have something better than a happy marriage. You have something better than thriving children. You have something better than millions of dollars. You have access to God himself. Amen? Finally, do you believe in Christ alone? 1 Peter 2, 5-6 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The old, weak, limited, useless has been set aside. The sacrifice has been made. The holy of holies has been ripped open. The, weak, the work has been done. The access has been granted. But the question is today for you is, do you believe in Christ alone? Do you believe in him alone? Or are you believing in yourself or someone else or, or in your own good works or in your own ability to have access to him? Do you believe in Christ alone? If you can't gain access, you, you can't gain access by believing in yourself. You can't gain access by believing in someone else's spirituality. Do you believe in Christ alone? That old French Protestant pastor, he listened patiently to the Catholic priest. He, he wanted to make sure he heard it right. He wanted to hear him out. He wanted to understand it. He wanted to make sure he understood it correctly and could respond graciously and clearly. However, I think his response is glorious. You see, the pastor acknowledged that, yes, to gain access to the president of France, then you do need these series of mediators. And he acknowledged, he agreed that, listen, God is greater than the president of France. But here's what the Protestant pastor said. He said, you know, all those truths simply make the gospel even more glorious. He then explained, we're not just citizens of God's kingdom, but we're sons and daughters. Sons and daughters don't need assistance to speak to their father. Sons and daughters, Jesus changed the weak, old covenant. The covenant that limited our access to him. And he brought a new covenant. A new covenant that was based upon his indestructible life. It was, it was based upon his power. He brought all this so that you can have a better hope. You can have eternal access to him. Not based on your own good works, not based on some priesthood trying to get, it, uh, get you there. It was based upon him and his work. So don't trust in yourself to gain access to God. And, and hear me, don't trust in someone else to gain spiritual maturity. Rather, trust in the one who bore your sins on the cross. Believe in the one who is so powerful that even death could not kill him. Believe and marvel at the access. Marvel at the access by believing in Christ alone. And as Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you know it, repeat it with me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father God, we marvel today at the access that you've given us. We know we don't deserve it. And really, Lord, we're left to believe it. We're left to marvel at it we're left to worship you because of it we're left to live according to that access that we have or may we never be a people that try to earn a, a, a relationship with you
May we be a people in our, in our faithful moments and in our unfaithful moments. May we be a people that just rest in your grace, the grace that you bought for us, that we would believe that our access is through you, you're the mediator. Lord, may we worship you for that today. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Our communion reading today is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 5 and 6 again say this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. His body was broken. His body was beaten so that he could be that sacrifice for you, so that he could take your place once and for all. Today we remember his body broken for us. His suffering wasn't just an example for us. His blood was spilt to accomplish something, to accomplish something legal and cosmic and spiritual. His blood was was spilt so that he would be a mediator for you. If you believe in that blood that was spilt, then today we remember what he accomplished for us. Thank you.